announcements I'm aware of. Number one, deacons meeting on Saturday morning at 8.30. And number two, there's not going to be a men's prayer breakfast uh, this, uh, this time. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Let me remind you the importance of prayer at this time for our nation, for our leadership, for this election, uh, for safety, and also for whatever the aftermath is to this election. There are so many rumors. There are things that are said. We don't know if there's going to be violence or riots or whatever, but um, we need to be in prayer for our nation. So uh, be in prayer for the nation consistently, for our president. And then, um, and so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to focus upon you, to be reminded that we live in a dangerous world because it is Satan's world and he's the prince and the power of the air. He is the God of this age. And Father, we know that he seeks to have his way with this nation. We know he seeks to have his way in destroying the uh, testimony of the church, the true biblically grounded church in America and that there are so many pastors and so many seminaries and theologians that are so confused and so uh, distracted, and they they have no idea what they're talking about or what they call Christianity. And, Father, we pray that you would just expose that. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, protect us as a congregation from the evil that is around us, and that we might continually recognize we are not to be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that we need to have wisdom and discernment that only comes from a study of your word, only comes from uh, being able to uh, analyze the culture around us uh, in light of your word so that we can see the dangers and see the errors and that through God the Holy Spirit we can uh, avoid them and we can be faithful to you. And Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us in our study this evening in Christ's name. Amen. Now, next Thursday night, I think you're going to have a treat. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be um, in Tucson, Arizona. Last March, we had to cancel or or postpone uh, the annual Bible conference at Tucson Bible Church because of the pandemic. And so I won't be here, and we're going to have a new uh, person in the pulpit, a new backup person. His name is Scott Griffith. Um, where'd Greg Gregory Freehoff go? You hiding back there? Did you know Scott? Where'd you go? Did you know Scott when you were a kid growing up at Baraka? Okay, because he's about your age. Uh, and um, anyway... 
So he has been, uh, he's a student of mine at Chafer Seminary, and I've gotten to know him, and I've heard him teach some at a church where he attends in, in Baytown. And it just, it was obvious within the first five minutes of hearing this guy's got the, got the gift of pastor teacher. He's really squared away and solid. I think you will, uh, appreciate him. So he will be here, uh, coming in next, next Thursday night. So what that means is for those of you who aren't here but can be here and those of you who are live streaming and can be here, it's helpful when we have a guest speaker to have uh, a few people sitting in the audience uh, rather than a few people. So anyway, I have heard him teach several times and have uh, uh, enjoyed uh, listening to a good uh, teacher, a young man who's doing a good job. So he'll be here next next week and probably when I go to Kiev in in uh, in January. All right, let's open our Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one, and tonight what we are going to do is resume our study of Second Peter. And so we need to have a review and an overview because the last lesson, which was lesson thirty two, thirty two hours in chapter one, the last lesson was taught on Thursday, March the 19th. My, has our world changed in those seven months or so? 31 weeks. That was the first Thursday night, the week after the Chafer Conference, and just before, uh, just after we started to, to lock down and do, do everything. And so I taught a series related to the uh, sort of the COVID crisis and how to handle crises in our lives and things of that nature. And that covered about a month. And then we took time to look at how should we then vote going through a biblical framework for voting. And that took us up until just uh, three or four, two or three weeks ago. And so I needed to take time to go back and review everything that I had taught in those uh in the time that I've been teaching Second Peter, those 30, uh, 32 lessons. So that was uh, almost a, not quite a year. And so we are resuming this, but we need to have a review. And I'll just say this much as sort of a summary intro to this, is that as we look at Second Peter, the issue is uh, the, the, the guts of this book, the core of this book, really comes in chapter 2. And it's the warning against false teachers and the impact that false teaching has on a congregation. And so chapter 2 is, is extremely important. And the issue that leads up to it, the prep that leads up to it, is what we're going to see in uh, what we've seen in the fir- this first chapter, which has to do with being spiritually prepared to handle the test of exposure to false to false teachers. And as I went back through, this was not a conscientious approach on my part. It's the Holy Spirit it has nothing to do with me. I was amazed how many times we went through things that related to and emphasized the uh, inerrancy of Scripture, the divine origin of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, which, of course, is central to verses uh, 3 through 5, the importance of, uh, of Scripture as the foundation of the spiritual life, 
And all of that really is what the text is talking about. That's what undergirds it. That, however you read it, you have to read it in that light because what, what the chap, chapter ends with in verses uh, uh, 20 and 21, focusing on the fact that no prophecy of Scripture is given uh, by the uh, human interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what it's driving towards is the importance of the Scripture so that when you get to chapter 2, which remember there's no there's no pause, there's no chapter break, there's no uh, changing of the page or anything between that last verse, verse 21 of chapter 1, and the first verse of chapter 2. And so if we read it in context, it reads, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people. That is the Old Testament. Even as there will be, future tense, false teachers. Notice, prophets in the Old Testament, teachers in the New Testament. It's, a, it's a implied there that you, there are, there's not going to be a permanent gift of prophet in the New Testament. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And so it, it all drives in that direction. So that's, that's the focal point here. Now, let's just go to a basic outline, basic structure of, of the epistle. The first chapter, it's, it's easy. It's a three-chapter book, three-chapter epistle. It's not long. It, it can, it's easily broken down chapter by chapter. The first chapter is God's will for us to grow to spiritual maturity. It's only when we grow to spiritual maturity and we understand the word and applying the word that we can handle the challenges of life. And one of the challenges of life is false thinking, just, just, not just false teaching, but false th- thinking. And if we look around us today, the false thinking that has captured so many people in this country, and they're just not in love with it. They are in serious hate with biblical Christianity. They despise us. There is such a, a uh, an evil hatred and antagonism to biblical truth now that that it's palpable. So God. God's wills for us to grow spiritually so that we're prepared for that test of the false teaching, the false views, the false ideas. And then we're warned about those in chapter 2. We're warned about those and how God will judge them. And one of the things we'll see more and more as we get into chapter 2 is how chapter 2 will see. There's a couple of things in chapter 1, but chapter 2 especially is parallel to what we find in the book of Jude, and one chapter in Jude. And Jude is talking, is written somewhat later than 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter is warning this church that these uh, evil teachers will come. It's a future tense. There's several future tense. For, there's a lot of debate over that, that, and we'll get into that once I start teaching chapter 2. But it's it's generally he's talking to them as if this is future, but then he shifts to present tense before long, 
And so there's debate. Well, is he talking about these 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 false teachers are already on the scene? Or some people say, no, they're yet future. Uh, and Jude writes when they're present. It's clear. I think what's happening is, and my solution to that, uh, that, that conundrum is they're not present with this group yet. But they're already on the scene generally. There are these false teachers. And so Peter's warning them that this is what's coming and they haven't faced it yet, but they will. And so he can talk after the introduction. They will come after, after he gets past that. He talks about what they are teaching in the, in the present tense. So God warns us about the false teachers and we'll have some fun going back into the Old Testament because he's going to illustrate his points with different events from the Old Testament that some of which are not too well understood. He talks about Balaam and then not too many people know a lot about, about Balaam. So we'll go back to that. So that'll be covered in the second chapter. In the third chapter, God through Peter refutes specific false teaching in light of the future return of Christ. Now there's a significance to that because if there's no future return of Christ, then there's no future evaluation either of the believer or of the unbeliever. If there's no future return of Christ, there's no real end game. And if there's no real end game, there's no motivation for obedience. And so that just leads to a, a collapse of morality. And that is exactly what is a part of, a major part of the heresy here is that all ideas have consequences and all ideas have ethical consequences. And even if you don't see the connections between somebody's ethical ideas, you go to university, you listen to some uh, philosophy professor, you listen to someone who's uh, talking about abstract theories, and you don't see the connection to ethics, they're all there. Ideas have consequences, and good ideas have good consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. And so these these heretical teachers are going to come with bad ideas, and it produces bad consequences, ethical uh, chaos in, in in the church. And so there's the warning in chapter three of the future uh, coming of the day of the Lord and the need to be steadfast. Verse fourteen. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. In other words, in light of these things that will come in the future, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot or blemish. So that pretty much gives us that overview that we are to grow spiritually as the, as the epistle ends in 318 in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing Two things that are attacked in terms of false teaching today within the church, within the church, it's grace and knowledge. Very few people really understand God's grace. And there is such an anti-intellectualism in the church. And that, and what I mean by anti-intellectualism is it, it, they are against using the intellect for its proper purpose, which is to think. 
And if you don't know how to think and you don't want to think and you don't want to learn how to think, then you're going to be deceived by anybody who comes along and you're going to end up making horrible decisions in your life because you never learned how to objectively evaluate the issues that you face in life. And so it's important to develop those, that intellect. And everybody today wants to be entertained. You go to church, you have 40 minutes of entertainment, and everybody's emotionally exhausted when that's over with. So all they can stand is a 20-minute sermonette, and that's about it. And so everybody just goes home and thinks that they had something. But it's just spiritual fast food. It is analogous to eating. Uh, remember the guy a few years ago? Did, did a little test. He, he went in, had a physical, got his blood tested, and he went through and he had all of the all of the various tests. He had his blood sugar, his all the enzymes, everything that you get, your blood pressure, and all of the other things. And then he spent, and he got, of course, got weighed. And then he spent the next month. This happened up in New York. Every time he and he went to fast food places, he went to Burger King and McDonald's and all the fast food places. And every time they said, can I supersize that? He said, sure. And he put on about 30 pounds in a month and he was became pre-diabetic. He had high blood pressure. He had um, just about anything that that you can imagine going wrong with him was beginning to go wrong with him. And see, that's a perfect illustration of what happens in the church. We eat spiritual fast food. All you're eating is junk food. It's just fluff. It's cotton candy and whipped cream and and cake and uh, sugar and everything nice. But when the end of the day, it's not giving you any spiritual nutrition. And so the result is that when uh, all of a sudden you have to run a marathon, you can't even run a 20-yard dash. And that's what, what's happening in so many churches today. So we have to grow, and that involves study. So we started off, and I pointed out in terms of the uh, outline, that it starts off with a salutation in chapter 1 uh, in the first two verses. And so the, these verses read, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That tells us who's writing this epistle. Second, to whom he is writing is in verse 2, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior of Jesus Christ. So we looked at these things, broke them down, and we looked at Peter. Who is Peter? Why is Peter important? And so we looked at five things, Peter before Christ. Then second, we looked at Peter's search for the Messiah. That's described mostly in the first chapter of John, the Gospel of John. Third, we looked at Peter's life as one of the 12 disciples, and I outlined nine key events in Peter's life as a disciple. Then we looked at Peter's life as an apostle in the early church, and I had ten different events that are take place in Peter's life in the book of Acts. And then the fifth thing was to look at some traditions about uh, the apostle uh, Peter. So we'll just review some of these. And we talked about the first event was Peter walking on the water, recorded in Matthew 14, 28 to 31. He's out on the fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee, 
with the other disciples, and this storm comes up. Jesus isn't with them. Storm comes up, and then Jesus, they see Jesus coming out. How did they see him coming out walking in the middle of the night? That two options. You got a full moon or it's, or some kind of, you know, miraculous manifestation of light. I'm going to vote for a full moon. So they could see him. They thought it was a ghost. And then he speaks to them and calls Peter to come out to him. Peter is, is front and center all the time. It's always the first name mentioned in all the lists. He is uh, uh, the, the one the Lord asks key questions of. But Peter walks on the water. Then, of course, he looks at the waves and he falls beneath the waves because he, he gets his eyes on the details and the chaos and the struggle rather than focusing on the Lord. It's just a great episode. Second, in John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69, you have this situation where um, where the Lord talks to them, and and right before that, after he's he's fed fed the multitude, and they've left, everybody's gone. He says, "Well, why don't you guys leave?" And it's real interesting because it says all his disciples left, just the twelve are left. And he says, "Why don't you guys leave?" And Peter said, "Because you have words of eternal life." We're not going to get that anywhere else. A lot of lessons from that. The more you teach the truth, the fewer people are going to follow you. Third, Peter is, there's Peter and the rock. This takes place. We've gone through this many times. Peter at, uh, up, Peter and Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel with that huge rock escarpment. And there Jesus says, uh, well, who do people say that I am? And they go through this list of Elijah, John the Baptist, and uh, prophet. And then he says uh, to Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus and uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then the Lord says, well, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. The Father revealed this to you. And he says, on this rock I will build my church, a passage that has been grossly misunderstood because Peter's name meant rock, but it's a different, slightly different form of the word than what Jesus used. And the idea isn't that Peter's the rock. Some people say, well, it's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's not his confession. It is, I, I believe Jesus is pointing to himself. It's on his, this rock. Because all through the Old Testament, the name rock is a name given to God. He is the rock of Israel. Moses says, you are our rock over and over again. We've gone through that study many times of the importance of understanding God is that rock. And so Jesus is identifying himself with God as the rock. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, you have Peter, James, and John are invited by Jesus to go up on an unnamed and uncertain mountain. And as they get on the top, there is a manifestation of Elijah and, uh, and Moses. And Peter, as he usually does, puts his foot in his mouth and says, well, let me build a tabernacle here so that we can we can worship you he, he confuses the whole issue the tabernacles which was we which was just celebrated sukkot uh the jewish holiday a week ago has to do with the uh provision for israel in the millennial kingdom 
And so the the issue isn't building a temporary shelter. The issue is uh, Jesus' mission on the earth and the things that he will will suffer as he dies for our sins. And so Peter gets that wrong, and Jesus, or good God, actually God the Father says from he- heaven, basically, he's not quite this blunt, but he's basically saying, shut up, Peter, and listen. Uh, this is my beloved son, uh, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And so uh, that's Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then the next episode has to do with Peter struggling with forgiveness. When the, when Jesus says that you have to forgive one another, Jesus Peter says, well, how many times? I mean, after somebody does the same thing over and over again, you know, it's seven times enough and then you know, something else. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, without end. You always forgive them. That doesn't mean that you allow them to take advantage of you over and over again, but that there is a forgiveness so that you don't get caught up in mental attitude sins and resentment and hatred and vindictiveness and all these other things. So Peter his struggles with forgiveness, and then the Lord tells him that he's going to deny him. And, of course, Peter said, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. I'm not going to be the one to deny him. And, of course, we know the story that, that Peter is the one who, after they arrested the Lord and took him uh, to the uh, fortress to uh, over where are actually Herod's palace, where where um, Pontius Pilate would have been would have been staying, that Peter is outside, and three different times he's asked, aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you a Jesus? And each time he became, in, each time he said no, but he became increasingly adamant and, and, and virulent about his denial of Jesus. Then he, um, the seventh thing is that Peter and John run to the tomb when Mary Magdalene tells them that Jesus has been raised from the dead and they run to the tomb or she tells them that the tomb's empty and so they run. John stops and looks in and Peter just runs right in and so that he's the first to go into the tomb and one of the first witnesses for the resurrection. And then when the eighth point is we're not told exactly when this happened, but Peter learns about forgiveness. When the Lord comes and forgives him, there's a meeting between the Lord and Peter before he goes to sees him with the other disciples. And it's at that time that that the Lord forgives him for his denial. And so he learns about forgiveness. And then the last one, the ninth thing is Peter's commissioning that's described in John 21, 15 to 19, that you are to feed my sheep. And I always make this comment that in the church today at large, pastors get the idea their job is to build the sheep, I mean build the church, and it is the, um, it is the, the, the lay people without training who are to teach the sheep. And they're just the, the chief executive officer of the church. But what, God, what Jesus said was, I'll build my church. That's what he told Peter. He said on this rock, I will build my church. And he told Peter, he said, you feed the sheep. And so today we have pastors who aren't feeding the sheep. They're trying to do what Jesus did. And so the church is in a mess because nobody's truly feeding the sheep. Then we see Peter in the book of Acts. We have Peter in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 where they're choosing a disciple that will replace uh, Judas. And they cast lots and they choose Matthias. We see Peter's sermon uh, ten days later on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and his sermon there, quoting from the Old Testament. We see Peter and John in Acts 3 
They heal the layman, and this really gets them crossways with the Sanhedrin because they don't want them going around uh, preaching in the name of Jesus and that Jesus rose from the dead and performing miracles to validate their message. And so they are arrested and beaten by the Sanhedrin. And then a second time they are arrested and put in jail, and the angel releases them. And this is when they are brought back, and the Sanhedrin says, Look, we told you guys. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. And they say, well, we've got to obey God rather than you. And that's the standard for every believer whenever there's any government or any legitimate authority that is telling them to to do something or not to do something that the Scripture says uh, you should do otherwise. In Acts chapter 5, you see Peter's authority over Ananias and Sapphira when they lie about selling their land and they lied and they said, well, we gave it all to the church and Peter says, no, you didn't. And first uh, Sapphira dies and then Ananias. And then Peter and John open the doors to the kingdom to the Samaritan believers showing that what happens in Samaria is the same thing that happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and the authority figure in both places who has the key, the gospel, as Jesus said, uh, the keys to the kingdom. And so that's what that means. It doesn't mean what the Roman Catholic Church says. The key is the gospel. And when you believe in the gospel, then uh, you have opened the door. The door has been opened to the kingdom. Then Peter heals a paralyzed and the dead in Acts 9:32 and following, and then God sends him to Cornelius. So first the Jews on the day of Pentecost, then the Samaritans in uh, Acts chapter 8, and then to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And so that each of these groups comes uh, to the same gospel message showing that the church is going to be composed of Jew and Gentile together as we've been studying in Ephesians on Sunday morning. And then Peter is put into prison in Acts 12, and you know the story where the church meets and they're praying for him, and an angel releases him from prison. He comes to the house, knocks on the door, and uh, the young girl comes and looks out and sees Peter, and then instead of letting him in, runs back and tells everybody they don't believe it. Uh, they've been praying for it all night. Now Peter's here, and finally they let him in. And Peter, up through Acts, let's see, in Acts 9, in the first part of Acts 9, Saul is saved. And so it's Peter, 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 until you get to Acts 8. Acts 8, you're introduced to Saul. Acts 9, he's saved. Then it goes back to Peter, and then it goes back to uh, Saul, and then after Acts 13, it's all about Saul of Tarsus, except for uh, Peter speaking at the Jerusalem Council. So those are the ten events that run you through the book of Acts, and we did that in about eight minutes. So uh, that shouldn't leave your head spinning. It's just a good review to see how these things all fit together and how God has organized all of these things. So Peter's travels, he goes to Antioch, which is in Syria. Second, he goes to Corinth. Paul talks about him being in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, and says, and, and Paul is, is talking to the Corinthians because he's, he's, they, they've got the idea he's taking advantage of them. He says, look, I didn't take a penny from you when I was there. I wasn't like the other apostles. They have, it's all fine. They had the right to do it. They brought their wives, their families. They, they, you supported them. That's great. But I did not do that. I chose not to do that. And so he shows that it's just, it, it's not an issue of right or wrong. Whether you, and I've applied this in the past to, 
um, to pastors who don't have the sources, the funds, the organization to publish books and sell books. Let me tell you, I have had uh, one book published, and over the course of the 30 years, I think I may have taken in about two or three thousand dollars. So don't get the idea, with the exception of four or five people, you know, I don't know what that works out to. If you got three thousand dollars over 30 years, that's a thousand dollars every 10 years. So, um, you know, that's that's a hundred dollars a year. That you're not going to get a whole lot off of that. So this idea that pastors are taking advantage of people and getting rich somehow, uh, it, that may apply to a very small number. But uh, and that was a successful book. I was once told that. That you, you, that bestseller was in, in the Christian world. A bestseller was ten thousand books, and uh, we sold maybe five or six thousand. So that's not bad. Anyway, that's what that shows is that there's different ways, and God says they're they're okay. They're just different ways of doing things. So you can either uh, be supported by the church or do your work on your own, as Paul did. Um, that's what's described in 1 Corinthians 9. Then in 1 Peter 5.13, he goes to ba- Babylon, which had a huge Jewish... Uh, outside of Israel, that was the largest Jewish community in the ancient world. And then at the end, he finally goes to Rome, where he dies. He never went to Rome early, so the Roman church was established much earlier. Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, and Peter is, is over in Babylon and you'll read some people who say, well, Babylon is just a code word for Rome, but Babylon always means Babylon every other place in the Bible, so why would it mean be a secret code for Rome uh, that only works if you're into allegorical interpretation? So that's Peter, and he writes to the congregation, and he says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. So who's the us? The us would be the apostles. They have the same faith, and that's not just saving faith. That's not just an accurate understanding of the gospel of grace, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. It is the body of doctrine. It is they understood the truth in the body of doctrine, and it's the apostolic teaching. Now, one of the things that you get packed up with Peter is the idea of this doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church called uh, apostolic succession. You also get that in the Anglican or Episcopal Church. In the early church, they had apostolic succession. I always like to say it that way because it gets some people's attention. But it wasn't a succession of people. It was a succession of content. It was a succession of teaching. It was a succession based upon what was in the body of literature left by the apostles. And so they had the same faith, the same body of doctrine, the same beliefs as the apostles by means of the righteousness of God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this group is the same group that Paul wrote, I mean, Peter wrote to in First Peter where he said, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. One of the times when I read through Second Peter, I uh, underlined all of the different ways in which he talked about stirring up their minds, reminding them, thinking about it again, repeating what he had taught over and over again. And he does that, that's the only way you learn. It is popular in the teaching how to preach, to teach men to preach in a way that is memorable. 
But the problem with it is that they're just happy if people can remember one of his three or four points on Monday afternoon. They'll be happy if they can remember two by Sunday night. The issue isn't teaching them so it's somehow memorable and they can just catch a few phrases. It's you got to teach it over and over and over again. It's like any sort of drill you've gone through, whether it's athletic drill, whether it's a drill in dancing or ballet, whether it's drills that you do in, in music, playing an instrument, uh, any physical activity where you have to learn skill, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat until you can do it in your sleep. And that's how you're to teach the Bible is so that people can't forget it, not so that they might remember it in a day or two, but so they can't forget it. It's drilled into them. And that is what Peter emphasized as he's as he's teaching. Now, the other thing that we see at the end of verse uh, at the end of verse one, uh, this phrase, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which emphasizes the deity of Christ. Because in the Greek, you have this phraseology where you have a uh, an article you know, a noun to make in English to make it specific. It's not just a horse; it's the horse. The 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 is your definite article in in English. But we also have an indefinite. A horse could be just any horse. In Greek, you don't have an indefinite article, so you just have the article. And if you have an article and then a noun, and a second noun, and they're connected by the conjunction and, which in Greek is chi, you have article, noun, conjunction, noun, okay? Now, there's several exceptions to this rule are things that have to be qualified, but when the two, the two nouns have to be what we call in English common nouns as opposed to proper nouns. Now, a proper noun is somebody's name. In English, God is uppercase is a proper noun, but God in Greek is not a proper noun. Savior, when you capitalize it in English, is a proper noun. But it is not in Greek. In Greek, the rule is if a noun can be made a plural, it is not a proper noun. So you have the word theos and theoi. Theos is God. Theoi is God's. Okay, so that's not a proper noun. Savior, you have soter and, and soteria, and that is, uh, soteres, that is, um, that's a plural. So, uh, you can make both words, God and Savior, plural, so that means these are common nouns, and when they're linked by the conjunction and with one article applying to both, then those two nouns are synonymous and describe the same person equally. So that means Jesus is not only God, he is a Savior. The Savior is God. And so that's a very strong verse for the deity of, of, of Christ. So as we go through and we look at uh, this verse, we also talked about um, at the beginning, because Peter says that he is an apostle, and we got, went through the doctrine or the teaching, what the Bible teaches about apostle, and we studied that there, this word apostle is applied to two different types of people. You have the 11, not 12, Judas is gone. You have the 11 in Acts chapter 1 before they voted on Matthias. Those are apostle capital A. They are commissioned by Jesus Christ. It's important to determine who commissions whom to, to a task. And so the apostle is the, those 11 
are the apostles. Then you have a lowercase apostle who are those who are commissioned by a local church and sent out on a mission. That's a lowercase apostle. And so you have Barnabas and Junius and several others who are identified as apostles, but they're not the same as the 11. And, and one of the reasons we know that is Revelation 21.14 says, Now the wall of the city, talking about the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So that's pretty clear. God thinks there's 12. Now who are the 12? I, there's the rub. That's difficult. There's this ambiguous numbers game in the Bible. Yeah, how many tribes are there of Israel? Thirteen. Yeah, add them up, go through all the lists. There's about eight or nine different places in the Old Testament where they list all the tribes of Israel. And one or two or three of them might be the same, but then the next one you look at, it's it's different. Sometimes they'll have Joseph and include Levi. The next time they'll have Ephraim and Manasseh and leave out Levi. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's two sons. What's going on here? I have no clue, okay? Then one of my first questions for Jesus when I hit heaven. And so you have... 12, and but there's 13. And the same kind of thing here, because was Matthias, everybody gets wrapped around the axle. Was Matthias an apostle? Well, he's numbered among them in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1, but you never hear from him again. And so people say, oh, see, you never hear from him again. So he wasn't an apostle. Well, the only ones you ever hear from again are James and John and Peter. You never hear about Andrew or Nathaniel or Bartholomew or any of the others. They're never mentioned again. So that doesn't hold water. So I don't know who these 12 are. I know one's going to be Paul. And I'm pretty sure that the 11 are the other ones. So I think that's how God numbered them. But that's just uh, just my opinion. So uh, when you look at apostleship, there were certain qualifications as outlined in Acts chapter 1 and some other places that they had to have heard Jesus teaching. And, and people say, wait a minute, Paul didn't hear him. Do a little chronological work. If Paul came to Jerusalem as he would have when he was bar mitzvah to begin his pharisaical training, then he would have been in Jerusalem like around 14 or 15 A.D., which was, in my calculations, 15 years before Jesus started his public ministry. I'm convinced that Paul was in the crowds hearing Jesus. And so nobody ever questioned that. Witness of the resurrection of Christ, the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul and directly commissioned him. And so that's where Paul becomes an apostle. But you don't have apostles today. All these people who run around, you go to Africa, you've got thousands of apostles. You go to some denominations in America, you have thousands of apostles, but they're just charlatans. They're false teachers. They don't understand the Bible. They are not apostles. Okay, so as we get into this, we see that all of this is driving towards a knowledge of Scripture. In Second Peter chapter uh, one verse twenty, as I've already mentioned, uh, and twenty-one, the the importance of Scripture and that prophecy comes from God again and again. God is the foundation. That's what we see here. And, and this, this, these first two verses, it all goes to a foundation of God, and that's picked up in verse 3. 
and it's emphasized again. And so it is through the word of God that we are prepared to handle the false teachers. This slide tells us what the foundations of Christianity are. Because when we look at this verse and it's addressed to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, what is that faith? What's contained in the basics of the Christian life? And so this is just the starting point of it. We went through five lessons on what are the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. It is grounded on God as the creator, the infinite triune personal God who speaks, and he has spoken through his scripture, sola scriptura, the Latin for only the scripture. That is our authority going to the scripture. And he sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully human. He is undiminished deity and true humanity joined together in one person forever. And that qualifies him for his work, which is to be our substitute on the cross, Because man is spiritually dead, he has to be made alive again, and that comes only by faith alone in Christ alone. And then from there, we went on to talk about all of the other different aspects of Christianity related to not just the soteriology and salvation, but the Holy Spirit. We talked about uh, future things. We talked about uh, dispensations, all of the things that were just basically fundamental to Christianity. And these things were all taught to some degree by the apostles. Uh, that's why Paul writes First Thessalonians is they've got questions about how to apply what he taught them about the future coming of Christ. And people are dying and they don't know. They thought they were going to live until Jesus came back. And so they're confused. And so it tells us that in those three short weeks that Paul was with them, he taught a lot and he taught them through dispensations and he taught them through uh, eschatology. So then we come to the main part. All of that was just to cover the first two verses. The rest of it goes pretty quick. Verses 3 through 21 comes under one category, and this is God's will is for us to grow spiritually. People will go get all caught up and wrapped around the axle asking this question, what does God want me to do with my life? Well, it starts with growing to maturity in the spiritual life. It starts with getting your focus on the Word. And if you are walking with the Lord, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us that he's going to make your paths straight. And you're not going to have to worry about these things. If you get your soul straight, then your life is going to be, you're not going to know it ahead of time. God's not going to turn on direction signals and you want to turn left and he puts up a red stop sign or a green light or a yellow light. He is going to work it out and you will look behind you as you go. have gone through your life and said, I just didn't know what the Lord was doing. But as I look back on it, it was just phenomenal how he led and guided and directed me. And so there's three basic sections here in the first section, verses 3 through 11, focuses on God wants us to grow and to be spiritually productive or spiritually fruitful. That's the term that is used. So as to be able to discern false teaching when it comes. And then then verses 12 through 15 talks about how spiritual growth produces spiritual stability. You want to have emotional stability in your life? 
You want to have a a stability in your family when everything around you seems to be falling apart and going crazy like it has in 2020. And you want to have stability and not be scared or worried or fearful or anxious. Then it starts with what's in your soul and understanding that you have to look at life from God's perspective. So spiritual growth produces spiritual stability. That's in verses 12 through 15. And then in verses 16 through 21, he's going to talk about the fact that there will be uh, future rewards for those who have uh, been dependent upon God's word, that rewards in the coming kingdom are at stake. So let's just look at the first part. God wants us to grow and be spiritually productive so as to be able to discern false teaching. The starting point is always the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency means it's enough that you will never face a situation, a set of circumstances, a problem, a difficulty in life that God hasn't given you the answer for in his word. That you may not see how you're going to get through it, but God will give you the grace to get through it when the time comes. I don't know if you ever take the time to read. We have these magazines that are out in the fellowship hall, the voice of the martyrs, and to read some of these stories of how Christians are persecuted for their faith, how they're tortured for their faith, and you just wonder how, how they survive. And it's remarkable how God's grace gives people the strength to endure just horrific, horrific uh, pain. And uh, one of my uh, favorite stories is the story of a, a for, at the time he was a former Archbishop of Canterbury. This was in the time of Bloody Mary. His name was Thomas Cramner. And Thomas Cramner was arrested under the reign of Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor. Mary was the Queen of England, and she was a Roman Catholic. And, and so her father, Henry VIII, had separated from the Roman Catholic Church. And so the budding Protestant Church exploded. You, if, you go to, uh, if you go to university, they will tell you Henry started the Reformation in England. It was secular. And that's just garbage because they hate Christianity and they have never been taught correctly. Henry wanted a divorce so he could have a male heir. That's why he left England. But when, I mean, that's why he left the Roman church. But when he left the Roman church, it gave these, these, uh, Roman Catholic priests and theologians who have been reading Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox gave them the opportunity to say, all right, we're free of Rome, let's do our own thing. And that's when the Reformation started in, in England. It was not because Henry said, I need to, I need to, to get rid of, uh, uh, get, get a divorce and get a new wife. That just was sort of the occasion for uh, the church to, to take off and, and to grow. And, and so what happens is uh, that Cramner, who was archbishop under under Henry, is now accused of of heresy because he was uh, he he was a Protestant, and so Mary has him tortured, and he has to recant his faith, and so they they promise him 
that that they won't uh, that they'll let him live and that they won't uh, arrest his family. They won't take away his lands and money. All of these things if he would just sign his recantation. So he finally signs his recantation. Guess what they did? They're still going to burn him at the stake and they're going to take all the lands and money away from his family. And and so while he is being burned at the stake and the flames are coming up and licking his legs and burning his legs, he holds out his right hand. He says, this hand betrayed my Lord and Savior. And he held his hand in the flames until his arm burned off. How do you have the courage and the strength to do that? I don't know. Experientially, but God provides and so that's God's power. And that's what we're introduced here, the sufficiency of God's power to handle any and every single situation. First, Second Peter 1.3, since his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to our physical life and spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And that has to do, uh, the word that's used for knowledge, we went through the study there, that has to do with a more intimate knowledge with God. And in verse 4, by which, that is, by this glory and virtue of God, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that we should all be memorizing, that through these you may be partakers, that is, sharers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See, that's the problem today. We can never have a perfect world. We're never going to have a perfect government. We're never going to have a perfect president. We're never going to have perfect rulers because of the sin nature. And we studied the sin nature. The corruption is in the world by lust. It started with the lust of the eyes with Eve in the Garden of Eden when she is, when the serpent says, well, it looks good to eat, doesn't it? And she looks at it and says, well, it looks good to eat. So it starts with the uh, lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And next thing you know, we're all in the corruption of sin, driven by that lust pattern. And so as you go through this section, it ends up, um, or in First Peter actually ties back to that where Paul says that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The sin nature wars against and destroys our soul. And you look out and you read these articles in the paper and you read about these perversions that are taking place on Jeffrey Epstein's island and all this other horrible Things that we read that come out in the paper about these elites in our culture who are just as perverted and corrupt and evil as they can possibly be. It's all the result of the fact that they had no restraint on their sin nature in their life. They just went with it. Pure antinomianism. And it has warred against their soul and destroyed their soul. Now, one of the problems we run into when we talk about the sufficiency of God's word is there's a little saying that goes around today that is extremely deceptive. This is a warning. This is one of the many things that happens today when we talk about the arrival of false teachers. We're going to talk about how they attack the authority of Scripture. One of the ways they attack the authority of Scripture is attacking the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's very subtle. Remember, Satan is the most subtle creature in the garden. It's very subtle, and it traps so very, very many And that is this little phrase that they use called, all truth is God's truth. Doesn't that sound good? The problem is when you investigate it and think about it, it is a logical fallacy. Uh, It's called the fallacy of equivocation. 
That means the first term truth means something different than the second term truth. In other words, it's confusing apples with oranges. The all truth, and this is our definition of a logical fallacy, it's based on an error in deductive reasoning, uh, logical errors of reasoning or explanation or argumentation. And the equivocation occurs when a word is used more than one time in a, in a statement. And the, there's a semantic ambiguity there so that you, you sort of front load it the first time with one meaning, but that's not the same meaning you have the second time. So by, you're not really com- using it the same way both, both times. So in this statement, all truth at the beginning refers to truth claims that are based on finite human interpretations of his observations of the world around him. All truth that comes from my deductive reasoning about the world around me. And these interpretations are sometimes facts. They're often true, but they are often not true, and they are distorted. So we don't really have a way to determine that all of our observations are 100% accurate. But God's truth refers to the absolute, inerrant, irrevocable truth of God's word. So they're not the same. All truth is not God's truth. Because there's a lot of truth that you're taught in sociology classes and psychology classes and that you're taught in motivational uh, seminars of all kinds that, that, have, that aren't biblical, that distort and warp the thinking and put the priorities in the wrong direction. And what we have to recognize is that the Bible claims that God is truth. Jesus is the truth and the Bible is the truth. There's no equivocation there whatsoever. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And then in John 17, in his prayer to the Father, he said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. That's as bold and strong and powerful as it can possibly be. It is absolute truth, and the only way to grow to spiritual maturity to be sanctified is on the basis of God's word. But the human race is set itself against truth. Romans 1.18, they are truth suppressors. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That describes the human race from the beginning. We see the first example in Cain and Abel and Cain's uh, denial of the truth regarding what kind of sacrifice God's, God wants. So we have to be able to discern false teaching by understanding the sufficiency of God's word. That's the starting point. Now, in the verses 5 through 9, there's kind of a stair step here of different aspects of spiritual growth. And this was a certain phrase. I've got a slide later on. We'll just skip over. It's called cerites. This was a typical rhetorical device where a writer is organizing his material in a way that would capture people's attention and explain the, the relationship of various things. So he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So you have these attributes that relate to the spiritual life and spiritual virtue that are described in verses 5 through 7. 
And then in verse 8, we have the positive. If you do these things, if these things are yours, if you grow and mature and have these qualities in your life, then you will not be spiritually barren or unfruitful in the knowledge. Again and again, we have this emphasis on knowledge in, in Second Peter. Uh, you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't do it, the opposite, for the one who lacks these things, if you don't have these spiritual virtues, then you'll be short-sighted to blindness. In other words, you're not going to be able to see the light to make good decisions, and you'll make a mess of your life. And you've forgotten that you were cleansed from his own sins. So see, that relates to a believer who's been cleansed from his own sins, and now he's, he's, he's negative. Now, I went through a comparison here. We studied the spiritual life, how in John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. And Ephesians 5.8, we're to walk in the light and you'll bear much fruit. And in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will bear fruit. So these terms, abide in me, walk in the light, walk by the Spirit, those are all roughly comparable talking about the spiritual life. And if you do these things, then you will bear much fruit. Fruit, And that's what Peter is talking about in, in, in this verse, that if you are maturing and these attributes and qualities and character qualities are developing in your life, then you are going to be fruitful in your spiritual life. Then when you, and this is what is talked about. Then what, excuse me, then what's talked about is in verses 12 through 15. And in 12 through 15, we read, Therefore, I will not neglect to remind you constantly over and over again. I will not neglect to remind you constantly about these things, even though you have known them and have been made stable. And then the correct way to translate the Greek is you're made stable by means of truth. Notice he keeps coming back to the absolutes of God's word. You're made stable by means of the truth. It's a prepositional phrase in the, in the Greek, and it should be translated that way. But it is not. Usually all that you have uh, translated there, um, that you are established in the present truth, which just loses the whole content. You now have, uh, uh, by means of the, uh, the truth that you now have, then this is comp- comparable to what Jude talks about in Jude 5. Remember, I say there's this parallel between these two epistles. I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Why? They, they rejected the word and they were unstable. Now, when we go through this, we recognize the Bible presupposes the existence of absolute truth. Today, people say, what is truth? There is no truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. You go and do your truth. I'll do my truth, and everything's going to be fine. But what if there is one simple absolute truth like the law of gravity, that there are spiritual truths that are just as absolute as physical laws in this universe, and that if you violate them, you may not... um, you, you may not reap the negative consequences immediately. It may take 10 or 20 years, and then all of a sudden it's too late to go back. So the Bible recognizes absolute truth. And if there's no truth, there can't be any communication. You lose language if there's no truth because those words have to have stability and always refer to the, to, the, to the same thing. Scripture says God is the God of truth. Notice here at the beginning in Deuteronomy 32.4 when I was talking about Jesus is the rock earlier. Here Moses says God is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. 
One of the articles I read made a good point. If you read anything that talks about social justice or social anything, uh, put in, take the word social out and replace it with the word not, and that's exactly what you will get. It's not justice. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, social welfare. It's not welfare. It's not taking care of people. These things would just distract people. Anyway, God is the God of truth. Psalm 31, 5, he's the Lord of truth. Uh, he is, has his truth. Psalm 40, 11, your truth continually preserves me. Psalm 100, verse 5, his truth endures to all generations. Psalm 119, 142, your law is truth. Psalm 119, 151, all your commandments are truth. Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Uh, Psalm 146.6, who keeps truth forever. And then in verse 13 through 15, what happens here is that uh, Paul emphasizes what, I mean, Peter emphasizes what is going on. Uh, he says, yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent. I'm in physical life to stir you up by reminding you I need to go over this and over this and over this so you don't forget it. Uh, knowing that shortly I must put off this body just as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I'll be capable, careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after, after my decease. And then we come to the last section, which was the last part that we covered from about last January and February. Uh, rewards in the coming kingdom are at stake, and this is based on following truth. Second so, uh, Peter one sixteen, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. Why did he receive honor and glory? Why is he rewarded? Because he was the truth. He followed the truth. He obeyed the truth. That's the same thing for us. We'll receive honor and glory. And the Father will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, if we walk according to the, to the truth. And so Peter recognizes this, that he refers back to what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, when uh, God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have this, this truth. There was evidence of this truth. And in verse 19, uh, and, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. That relates to the coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, it doesn't originate. Some guy didn't say, what can I come up with today? He didn't privately invent it. Uh, it came by the will of, not by the will of man in verse 21, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's all in this battle between truth versus relativism. Whose truth? God's truth or man's truth? John 8.32, Jesus said, and you shall know the truth. You have this blazon on so many university buildings. It's not their truth that will set you free. It is God's truth that will set you free. That's what Jesus said. He is the Spirit. Uh, he said the Holy Spirit's going to come who's the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. He's going to. He's the author of the Scriptures, the one who uh, enables the writers of Scripture to write, write the truth. John fifteen twenty six. again, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. 
And John 16, 13, he is the spirit of truth again. When he has come, he will guide you. That is, he's talking just to the disciples into all truth. That is, they'll be able to remember everything they need to to teach and write about Jesus. And then what we saw earlier, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so this is the focal point. There is truth. And so the contrast to that absolute truth is what's going to come out when we get into verse 1 of chapter 2 next week. There were also false prophets. Well, not next week. I'll be in Tucson, but the next lesson, week after next. There were false prophets. To have false anything, you have to have an absolute measuring rod. There has to be absolute truth, an absolute standard, whereby you can evaluate and determine what is true, what is wrong, what is false, what is true. So this is the warning here. And then we're going to see the illustration of what happens, what happened to false teachers historically, and all of that relates to the fact that each one will be judged. That's why that last point, I tie that to eventual judgment and rewards, if we are obedient, there are rewards, because when you get into chapter 2, if you're not obedient, there's judgment, negatives. And so we'll get into chapter 2 and start working our way there next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of these great truths, these great principles that that are in this first chapter of, of uh, Second Peter. Father, we're thankful that the emphasis there is so firm on knowing the truth, knowing your word, uh, being prepared mentally and spiritually on this uh, bastion of truth so that whatever comes, uh, this time last year we never would have anticipated the kind of year that we have had during the last 12 months. We have no idea what may be around the corner, what may come in the next 12 months. And, Father, we pray that we may fortify ourselves, strengthen our souls uh, against the wiles of the devil, strengthen our souls against the lust of the flesh, so that we may stand firm in the day of adversity. And, Father, we pray that we might have a hunger and thirst for your word that will never quench, be quenched. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.